Today my guest is Will Comiskey. Will has one of the more exciting life stories for a man of his age, has done many a thing that not most people would even contemplate doing in their time, but uh, is very successful at all things he touches. Afternoon, Will. How are you? Very well, Kate. That's good. So where does the life of Will Comiskey start? You know, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Do all of those sorts of things. Well, we grew up on a place at uh, 100k north of Dingo, Inga Downs. Um, that's, that's where we grew up and I suppose in the horse world, that's where it all started as well. You know, growing up, Dad had, uh, had ponies he'd broken in and got going for us and uh, we were using horses most days then for mustering and, and any other work and um, that's where the love of horses came from anyway, Kay. Yeah, the name Comiskey is fairly synonymous with, with horses um, and good riders. I guess your dad was, was all of those things. Um, did he teach you to ride from a very young age or did you just something you sort of grew to like or did you love it from day one and have a little pony that was every day was where you were and what you did? Well, I can't remember learning to ride, so it was obviously quite early on that, that I learnt, learnt that skill and then... Uh, we had pretty good little ponies as well, so they weren't just your running your mills kids' horse either. You had to um, you had to be able to ride. Put it that way, they were um, they were pretty pretty forward moving, and uh, they were a lot of fun anyway. Growing up, so we, you know we we're always we had two brothers and myself, two older brothers. So you know, growing up, we we're always playing cowboys and Indians or <laughs> galloping around through the gullies, having fun. Yeah. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. So did you go to school in Dingo or did you do distance ed? Where, where did you, your mother rope you into schooling? So we actually uh, we actually used to go to school in Middlemount, which was half an hour away. So that's where we did all the schooling and that was our main town. And then we also, like we did pony club in Middlemount as well. And in those days, Middlemount was a really good pony club. Actually, it had a lot of, uh, a lot of quite good instructors. I see you did an interview with Grace Brody the other day, actually. I can't remember if she was an instructor, but she was definitely, um, you know, three-day eventing events and all that. She was definitely a judge, so I'll have to have a listen to that one. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, she uh, she certainly has spent a lot of time doing the pony club stuff. How did you find pony club? Like you said, you played cowboys and Indians on your ponies. I guess you weren't at pony club to actually learn how to ride. It was probably to, to slow you down. Your mother probably thought it was a good idea that you went there. Did you did you enjoy going to pony club or did you think it was all a bit a bit slow for for you? No, I, I enjoyed it. The Capella used to run the uh, pony club camps that would go for about four or five days. So they were always a lot of fun because... Mounted games was a lot of that. And then we we got right into the show jumping as well. So I actually won state equitation. That was the first big thing I won, I suppose. Um, I must have been grade seven, so about 12 when we did that. And then, yeah, pr- fairly fortunate to have some really good show jumping teachers coming through. So then off to boarding school, did you go to boarding school in Brisbane or into Rocky? No, in Brisbane, so we all went to Nudgee, and uh, over that period, there wasn't a lot of horse work. Like, we didn't do much with horses while we were at boarding school. That was, uh, we did the, did the cattle club stuff there, and then um, my dad used to, he was very diligent and saved up all the work for us for when we got home, <laughs> so there was always plenty to do. 
Yes, just like every other boarding school father, I think. Yeah. And so yeah. after school, did you just come home or did you decide you were going to go off and do something before you came back home or, or what did you do from from the uh, end of school? So mum thought it would be a good idea if we, if we all sort of went away and got something else different to farming. So, so I actually stayed in Gundawindi and did a diesel fitter's apprenticeship and I was rodeoing through those years as well. And then uh, that was really good. Like It was great to have done the diesel fitter's apprenticeship, not that I – pick up spanners anymore, but uh, it's a great skill to have. It uh, it gets you out of plenty of trouble, put it that way. I've just learned something I didn't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> you touched on the rodeoing years. Um, you were pretty good at that in your day and had a couple of uh, fairly hair-raising busters. Did you just decide it would look like it was fun and you're renowned for being an adrenaline junkie and that it was going to be a good way to satisfy your adrenaline rushes or was your father a rodeo rider in his day? Or how did that part of your life become pretty important to you at the stage? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I remember when we were young, we used to always go through Dad's ribbons, but the rodeos back then were very different. They were always bush shows, you know, like uh, Fox Lee had one and, there was, you know, there was a few stations around that held held events and uh, just as basically a way of getting together for the community and then um, so we used to, I used to look at that and then uh, it was it was just plain good fun plenty of good mates in that crowd uh, and then I probably uh, probably didn't give it as, as much as I could have to do be successful at it you know I did get to go to the finals a couple of times and that sort of thing and then uh, I was actually going to go to Canada and then uh, I broke my back a few weeks before I was meant to leave. So that's where the spanner in that works anyway. Yes, I, I remember that. Which radio did you have that buster at? Uh, that was down at Cranbourne in Victoria. Yeah. That was just before the finals, was it? It was actually, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it must have, must have only been a few radios before the finals. But in, in hindsight, it was actually uh, probably actually a very good thing that that did happen because, uh, you know, Put the brakes on in the radio world, which, you know, like, <laughs> it's a great deal of fun, but it doesn't actually lead to much, um, you know, because it's very different, very different for us, um, you know, because we're not so competitive, like, we're not as competitive as the Americans, you know, like, they're, they're riding Bronx and everything at five years old, so, and, yeah, for them, it's their full-time job, so, um, so in Australia, it doesn't exactly lead to much, so it was, it was really good in hindsight that that did happen because it put the brakes on, on that. And then, uh, I ended up, and at that stage, like I was, I was back at home as well. So I figured to have a year off, I'd go down to Marcus Oldham and study agribusiness down there. Yep. And, uh, and that turned out to be probably one of the best things I've done. So it actually worked out quite well, really. Yeah. So in your rodeo days, did you ride bareback horses or saddle bronc horses? I was just riding both bareback and saddle bronc. You yeah. rode them both. Yep. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're already going there, Kay, so <laughs> you may as well hop on two horses at one. <laughs> Never to do anything by halves, did you, mate? <laughs> no, no. So, um, so from Marcus Oldham, where did you go from there? 2011, I went to Marcus Oldham. So I was in on I hurt my back. And then, so 2011, I went to Marcus. And then, uh, so that was only 12 months, that degree. And then... Uh, I went back to Inga Downs and Luke and I were managing Inga Downs until 2014 when we sold it. So, you know, we were very fortunate business-wise because, you know, mum was quite generous and, um, you know, and gave us run of things. So we had to manage everything. And then, uh, 
that was probably really a, a big step for her to step back, and it was also a big step for us to step up. And that's uh, business-wise, that's where I got to gain a lot of my knowledge from that. So, you know, your, your love for horses is is dear. You uh, like any horse that you can get on and ride in any form, whether it bucks, trots, gallops. You're happy to to do it. You're not really fond of the ones that walk too much. I don't think. You play polo cross also. Um, where did you learn to do that, and um, what inspired you to want to do that? Uh, so. After we'd sold Inga Downs, I actually moved out to Longreach for a couple of years and then uh, it just looked like fun. I play for the Tambo team, so I joined up with them and it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's a great sport. You know, there's quite a lot in getting a horse ready for it, but once that's done, you get plenty of, plenty of game time and then uh, plenty of time to hang out and have a good time, so it definitely fitted the bill for an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> so, you know, your polo cross horse, did you buy it? Do you breed them? Did you break it yourself? You know, or do you think, I haven't got time to do that, it's easier to go and buy one ready and going? Uh, I actually bought one off uh, Netta Robertson. It was one of Jake Ross's horses. And then, um, and that was that was the main mare that I was using. And then I bought another one. And since then, I've got a couple of young horses that I've got going that are coming along. So just waiting, I suppose, until the day when uh, when we can actually do something again. Yeah, that will be an exciting day for lots of people, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the Comiskey name is pretty synonymous with camp drafting. Have you ever had a go at that, or do you think that's just a bit dull for you? Oh, camp drafting, uh, I mean, we did a little bit of it as kids, but we always seemed to be too busy to be getting away too often to get to them. And then uh, I actually haven't done that much of it. Uh, I enjoyed the polo cross thing because you got a lot of game time. You know, you go there for a weekend and you get a couple of hours of games in. So I enjoyed that rather than having, uh, you know, having to have a heap of horses to take to a camp draft to um, get get your run. Accumulate so, ten minutes of riding. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's probably something. I'm, I'm actually uh, now that I'm aging a little bit. <laughs> hey, I'm probably I'm looking I'm looking forward to getting into that. Definitely. So uh, I've got a few horses coming along, which I think I'll earmark for doing a bit of that. So I actually uh, have spent a bit of time in the States, like with Dan James and, and Rob Huddleston. He's a reigning horse trainer. So I've been going back and forth over there for the last few years, spending time with them, working out how to train horses better and you know, getting the most out of a horse. So, And for any particular reason other than the fact that you just like it, do you think there's a business to be made out of that for you or... It's just something you really like to do and do well. Uh, I mean, I'm a huge advocate of doesn't matter what you love in life, just do whatever you love and don't worry about the rest. So it's uh, it's actually just something I really enjoy. So that's why I was going and doing it. I mean, since then I've broken in a few horses for other people and I've been retraining or getting horses ready for people. So it certainly does help. Yep. But I only really do it because I do love it. So... My main uh, income is trading cattle. That's where I make my money, and then uh, the horses is just something I enjoy, so that's why I do it, yeah. I guess one of the things that uh, in the equestrian world that, you know, whether you like it or not, you are famous for now was your participation in the Mongolian Derby. Not only did you participate, you won it. Step us through that. That looks an absolutely amazing, A, experience, and B, challenge. Oh, yeah, definitely. That was... um I absolutely loved it. Uh, I had a few mates that had gone and done it in previous years, and then uh, you know you sit around and have a couple of years with them, and they get telling all the stories, and you think, God Almighty, these blokes are either you know it's either true and it's incredible, or they're full of shit and they're making it all up. Yeah. 
but they can't all be lying. So I thought I'd better go and have a look at this. And then, um, so 2015, uh, 2016, I think was the first year I went over to go in the race. And then it was kind of funny, you know, like this is where growing up on, on a cattle place and riding horses for work paid off because I knew exactly how to ride a horse to get a lot out of it. And you could work out how to sort of nurse one along. So you had a little bit left at the end of the day. And then it was a thousand kilometre race. Each horse had, like you rode 28 horses, so each horse had to do 40 kilometres. Yep. And then uh, there was basically no rules <laughs> except you could only take five kilos of gear. A horse had to pass a vet check at the end of its 40 k's, and you could only ride between 7 o'clock in the morning and 8.30 at night. So you basically had nothing. And if you were, you know, if you weren't going to make it to the next station, it was 8.20 where you'd sort of start looking around for somewhere to camp, and um, it was a lot of fun. So... How did you train for that? A lot of people would go, I've never even heard of the Mongolian Derby. And to be truthful, I hadn't heard much about it until I saw you were doing it. How did you train for that in Australia where, you know, if it's zero degrees, we're really thinking it's freezing and and that pales in insignificance in Mongolia. The horses that you appeared to ride were nothing like what we've seen here. What what did you do for training? Well, training, you've actually got to take the training quite seriously, Kay, because Mongolia, like, in one day, you can it can be minus 10 degrees Celsius and then 40 degrees by the end of the day. And, I mean, you're going through rain and sleet and then hot weather. I mean, you've got to be finding water the whole way, like through a country that you've never been through. So you very quickly learn how to ask where water is so you can ask locals because mostly you're looking after the horse. So, so training for it, I got all my gear ready because taking five kilos of gear, it might sound like it's a little bit, but when you're going off on a 10-day horse race, like that's unsupported well everything's fairly crucial and then uh, you've got to work out exactly what to take because yeah Mm. you've you've only got five kilos so you spend a lot of time looking at lightweight gear that's very practical and then uh and then i you know test everything out like made sure the jacket was waterproof enough and uh made sure the bivy and the sleeping bag was waterproof and warm enough so you know you'd sleep out just to check that and like also you'd be sleeping on the ground so that's one thing you've actually got to get used to. So sleeping on the ground, is it, it hurts the first few days. And then after that, you come good. So, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, I really learned that because I did it two years consecutively. And then uh, so I really learned how important that was in the first year. And then I was riding horses. So I had a, had a few horses there and I was riding them most days. And then I'd do a couple of days where I'd get all my horses together I'd, uh, and I'd ride until I'd done 100 kilometres for the day. And then, I mean... You do that just before you go. Like, you don't have to do 100 kilometres often. You just do it before you go but to, you know, like, it fatigues your body and then it recovers and then when you get there, you, you're right. You're sort of working. Yep. So just um, just paint a picture for people. You arrive in Mongolia. You know, where do you start? Is it at a, in a town? Is it at someone's property? What are you actually seeing when you get there? You know, for the uninitiated, like, you grew up in the bush, so isolation and, and those sorts of things were not new to you. But if you were someone who was an equestrian rider who rode around Kings Park in Sydney and thought you were going to go off and do the Mongolian Derby, it would be a pretty big deal. So what did you arrive to when you got there? There was a few equestrian people that did do a K and some of them just completely gave out and some of them really surprised you. So, so to paint a picture from Mongolia, like basically you fly into Ulaanbaatar because it's landlocked between China and Russia. You fly into Ulaanbaatar. That's the capital of Mongolia. There's there's actually more horses in Mongolia than there is people. I think there's 3 million people. 
about one and a half of them live in in Ulaanbaatar, so that's the, the main city, and then the rest are nomadic herdsmen. So the race is a thousand kilometres, and I never saw a fence. So it's basically like you leave Ulaanbaatar, so we'd get in there, you know, you get to the motel, then they'd do a rider briefing, so work it all out, and they'd weigh you in, make sure you're uh, underweight because you couldn't be over 85 kilos, I think it was. Good. There was one bloke there who was really nervous about the weight and we were drinking mare's milk at the local markets and anyway, he spent, uh, he shed a lot of weight really quickly, <laughs> put it that way. I'm sure he did. <laughs> <laughs> so you say you didn't see a fence. So how do you get from checkpoint to checkpoint? So so basically, put us on a bus and we'd, it was like a day's drive from where, we, where the start of the race was and then you get there They'd upload the maps onto the onto your GPS, so you'd you'd have checkpoints on your GPS. And there was a the years I did it, they actually they actually had a, a bit of a breadcrumb trail on your GPS. Except you learned not to always trust it. Except sometimes if you didn't take its advice, you regretted it. And then uh, <laughs> so basically, that that just you'd wake up in the morning for the start. You'd uh, you'd just get given a horse for the first horse, and then. You'd put your saddle on it and pack your gear on. And then, uh, yeah, that was an interesting thing, working out what gear you could put on the horse and what gear you had to carry on yourself because there was plenty of people that lost horses. One friend, actually, Marie, she's an American lady. She lost her horse and was never seen again with all the gear. Oh, God. And uh, she actually finished the race. She she borrowed a saddle and and finished the race. Anyway, so basically the race would start, and that's probably one of my favourite pictures because the the race was starting. So I thought, if I'm going to lead the race, the best place to do it is the first hundred meters. <laughs> so um, I was galloping, yeah, I was galloping out in front, having a bit of a laugh, and then uh, and, yeah, because it's crazy. There was forty people in the race, and you're all like charging off together. It was chaos. I mean, it was like five busters in about three hundred meters. <laughs> and um, yeah, one, I think one, I think the first year, one bloke, like that's that was as far as he went. He was out. He mm. he broke a heap of ribs, mm. and then uh, so anyway, and then. Then off you go. So, you, like, you get to the next checkpoint, and and then your horse has to pass its vet check, and then you uh, pick another horse off the string. So, obviously, if you're getting into the checkpoints first, you get pick of the horses. But that only matters if you're picking the good horses. So, and so when you got to a checkpoint, there was a string of horses. So, obviously, some of these herdsmen put their horses up for selection, I guess, out of the string. You know, were they broken, these horses? Could you tell that? Or did you just hope for the best, pick one for its size? What made you choose the horse that you chose? Um, well, I suppose that's, that's where it was a bit of natural instinct, you know, because you'd very quickly relate it to, you know, they're very much like a, a stock horse, except they're only 13 hands high. God, um, my size of horse. So any of, the, any of the stock horse types were really good. <laughs> And uh, and they were hardy too. Don't get me wrong. Like I mean, I had a couple of horses there to do forty k's in two hours. Gosh! And then if you made a bad choice on a horse, well, then you regretted it forever because the leg could take you five and six hours. So basically, each leg was taking you three to four hours. So did you ride with the stock saddle? You know, like you have when you're going mustering, or were they Mongolian saddles that are you know more like a jockey pad? What was your tack like? <laughs> Well, if you'd seen a Mongolian saddle, you would not want to race in one of them because they're wooden frame, like there's no padding on them, and they're uh, they're fairly prehistoric. And uh, after hanging out with the Mongolians, you'd learn not to trust their gear anyway because it's all basically made out of rawhide. Mm, so, God. so uh, no, the saddles we were using, 
the, the adventurous the company who ran the race supplied, they were like a synthetic Wintech type uh, endurance saddle. Yep. I mean, it served the purpose. It was okay. So in 2016, when you actually won the race, at what stage did you think, I'm in with a chance in this. If I keep my head down and keep doing what I'm doing, I'm going to cross the line first. Were you 300 k's in, 800 k's in, or 995? No, that's uh, it, we were racing until about the last leg, basically, so the last 40 k's. Yeah, so it was like it was a race the whole way to the end. So there was no uh, complacency at all. I mean, it was a lot of fun because no one knew what was going to happen, and and also like. Things change so quickly, like somebody who was in front of you could, you know, they'd have a buster and lose a horse and then that'd take them a whole day to recover or, or you know, like injuries are pretty rife as well. So out of the, I think it was only about 26 finished out of the 40. So if you had a bust. If, if you had a buster, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> and you lost your horse, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, you had your GPS with you, right? So, I mean, if you had a buster and it was actually severe, you could press help and, and someone would come and track you down, but that could take, that mostly would take hours because, like, there's, so there's no really roads through Mongolia, no. like, because they're all nomadic. They just know where they want to go, like, even if it's 300 kilometres away, they just sort of start driving that way and pick up a track and then jump over a range <laughs> and, you know, mountain range and pick up another track and keep going, so... Yeah. So that was that was the adventurers had to deal with that because there was two medics there and um, I mean they, and they needed them like because there was broken necks and bleeding on the brain and mm, God uh, it's not for the faint hearted a couple of broken legs and oh yeah but uh, but it's worth the fun <laughs> if if anyone if anyone uh, <laughs> if anyone wants to take the risk I'd recommend they do it but 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 if you lost a horse getting help like you basically had to sort it out yourself. So if you're riding with somebody else, like that, like everyone was really good natured. Like even though it was a race, like it's all for charity, so uh, everyone's pretty good natured about it. Like if you'd lost a horse, somebody would normally catch it, and then other, otherwise, uh, your next best thing was to track down a local on a motorbike and uh, get them to gallop the horse around until they could catch it. Because it's funny, like you wouldn't think it's a thing, but being a white person, we smell very different, yep. and it makes a huge difference. Like. You would actually struggle to catch a horse where a Mongolian would just walk up and get yep. it. So that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. So in saying that, that's one thing I learned for the second year. So as soon as I landed in Ulaanbaatar the second year before the race, I actually like stopped showering and, you know, no deodorant or anything like that to try and get a natural smell back. So basically, you want to smell like the black markets, which just smells like a goat, really. <laughs> So in the first year, um, you know, it was a very pretty symbolic and I guess because all of us that knew you knew, um, know what a, a kind and gentle person you are, you, you sort of basically rode across the line with two others. So there was, you know, you were regarded as joint winners. You know, your nature just makes you do that. Do you think you could have actually won it outright in, in that first year? Oh, uh, well, I mean, you can make up any scenario you want except it's never going to play out how you think it does. So the lady that I was rode the whole race with was the red-headed girl was Heidi. And uh, so her and I had ridden the whole 1,000 Ks together. So, like, if we finished, we were always going to finish together. And then the other the other American girl, Marsha, so we were racing her and she was with another friend. They were riding together, except her friend dropped out or fell back. And then, uh, like, I can't remember what happened there. I think it was a lame horse or something. And then... Heidi and I raced Marsha right to the last station, like 
before the finish line and we ended up having to camp there the night together. Mm-hmm. So, and we figured, well, we'd raced 960 kilometres and we were still there all together. So we figured, oh, well, we may as well just, you know, do the last leg together and then finish that way. So, no, it was, and it was a lot of fun. I'm really pleased it worked out that way because it, uh, you know, we're all really good friends. I've seen quite a bit of them. So, uh, it was really good. So, you know, something like that, that's a once-in-a-lifetime thing for most people. They go, I've been there, done that, and that was bloody hard work, but not Will Comiskey. He thinks he's going to get in the plane and go back to Mongolia and do it again the next year. Why? Well, yeah, um, basically Mongolia, like, it's so fascinating because like, you get so immersed in the culture because you spend time with the locals. So uh, I, I loved it. Like, I loved the people. They basically don't care about the stuff we care about. Like, they don't care about possessions or, you know, they don't care about things. Like, there's nothing that, you know, like, they just want to have a good time and, you know, enjoy life. That was my main driver for going back. And, like, honestly, going to Mongolia, like, the race is probably the best way to see Mongolia. So it was going to be a different route as well. So the first year we went from the south to the north and then the second year we went from the west to the east. Mm. And then also, like, there's just a little challenge, you know, niggle in the back of your head. You're like, I wonder could I actually win this again or was it a fluke? And then so I ended up becoming fourth the second year and it was the second year for me probably um, a bigger success because I got a terrible horse from the first starting line. So I was last person to get into the first check station. So there was like three horses left. And you can imagine, you can imagine what they looked like. I think I think one had three legs, but but no. And then so that was good because then you get, you know, because you're the last person getting in. It took me like three or four stations before I even caught up to the people. And then so I was on the second day. Uh, I actually got fairly bad hypothermia. Like I'd never had hypothermia before, so I didn't really realize how debilitating it was because you can't do the zipper on your jacket up and you like you can't light a cigarette. Um, and you know, and then I was trying to look after the horse as well because you're very aware that you've got to look after the horses to keep going. And then um, so then you've got to keep crawling your way back. Like so, that was the second day. So I had hypothermia, and then because there was a big storm that went through, so and everyone got a touch of it. And then, uh, you know, it completely wiped out one horse station. So, you know, they were all regathering the horses to get them back together for the riders. And then the next day was like, it was thinking hot. It would have been at least 40. And then, I mean, it was hot. So then I got actually got really sick from it. Mm. And then uh, I kept pushing on and then I kept pushing on for about another day. And then I was sort of sitting there thinking, bloody hell, I don't know if I just keep going. And then... Uh, I thought, right, oh, well, you just hop on the horse and you keep going. That's basically what you do, like, in life, no matter what happens. <laughs> so, so then uh, I hopped on this horse. Well, first I, I picked out this horse. I thought it's likely type. So I picked out this horse and then it was uh, chasing me around, striking at me. So <laughs> all the Mongolians were laughing, thinking that it sounded, yeah, they were saying it sounded its owner. <laughs> and then um, so I was like, oh, shit, I didn't feel like that. So then I hopped on this horse and then it started bucking, like, it, it went to town and then bucked around, bucked all through the horses, tried to take me off on the string line. <laughs> so I was like, right, this is it. So I, I galloped it and, and literally that horse, like, galloped for the 40Ks. God. And um, I got into the vet station and I said to the vet, I was like, this horse is mad, like, watch yourself. And he was like, oh, no, well, the heart rate's fine. <laughs> and, 
But I just like I was, expect, I was expecting to get a penalty because I wasn't, you know, like I couldn't stop the horse and I wasn't going to hop off or anything. And then uh, <laughs> he's like, "No, well, the horse is fine." So I was like, "Holy shit, righto!" So can I um, take it to the next station? That just goes to show you how good the horse is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then and he would have went too. It had plenty left in it. And then like because I'd got that horse, then I started getting up towards the front of the pack. And then I started to be able to pick better horses. So and then I ended up finishing fourth. So for me, it was a, that was probably. I feel like for me personally, it was a bigger success because I had to go through all the bad horses and I still caught up and yeah. got the good horses. Yep. Yeah. Mongolia, you know, you spoke about the locals and the people. It obviously holds a big place in your heart. Am I right in suggesting that you got married in Mongolia? Yeah, that's correct. So last year, Sophie and I, uh, we went back with a friend that I'd met. Eric Cooper, he helps with the race, but what he does also is he takes people on adventure rides. So he takes a tour up to the Tatan people. So they're up right on the Russian border in the Altai Mountains. So they're the last biggest nomads left in the world, uh, like with the longest nomadic route. Mm. So we went up to northern Mongolia and then we we still didn't know if we could actually get married up there. Like we were just going to do the ceremony and, and then... We we hadn't asked anyone, so we we took we took the wedding dress and and the suit and everything. Like we had to put it on pack horses and and no, and we hadn't told anybody else because everyone who was going, we're, they were all friends from the first year of the race. So we'd all got together and booked up together so we could all go together. And then uh, anyway, it worked out completely, like perfectly, like. Yeah, so if you got to ride in on a big wide reindeer and then we had a few bottles of vodka stashed as well, but the locals made short work of them. And then uh, it was it was funny because even like setting up for it, Marie, the girl that lost a horse the first year, well, she was there. She made up a big wedding cake. I don't even know how. Yeah, because like basically we've got no utensils. So it was just in a round bowl on a, on a fire and then uh, we couldn't find any flowers. So Eric said to the few locals that, helped guide us up there he said uh can you go find some flowers like do you know where some flowers are and then they're like oh we'll go look like not that they speak english but through a translator mm-hmm. and uh they came back like a couple of hours later and they all had big bunches of flowers under their arms uh, they were pretty chuffed with themselves and then uh yeah anyway so we got we got married uh, in front of a teepee on the on the russian border with with a nomadic reindeer tribe I just quantify that you did come back and have an australian wedding too didn't you uh, we didn't have an Australian wedding, no. We uh, we just filled the paperwork out, so that was rather <laughs> uneventful. It was a fun day. Though, so. What do Sophie's <laughs> parents think? <laughs> eloping, uh, eloping is not something that the family's ever very happy about, put it that way. No, no. And so has Sophie said, righto, that's the end of your ad- adrenaline junkie exposés. We're now going to go back and live some somewhat of a normal life, or is she as much an adrenaline junkie as you? No, Sophie's very adventurous as well. So, like, we went back adventurous. Uh, at the start of this. Yeah, so, so we went back to um, so the girl that lost her horse in the first race, Marie. We went back there and visited her. She's up in, in Montana, and it was in January, so it was freezing. So there's heaps of snow around. And we, she was getting ready for a race in South America that's run by the same people. So she was training for that. So I was like, oh, well, that'd be great. If we come over, we could go take pack horses and camp out and do all that sort of stuff. Uh, I mean, even though it's in the snow, because you've got to prepare, and then uh, like it was a lot of fun. But you know, you'd wake up in the morning and your boots were frozen and uh, all that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. no, it was good fun. Sophie, Sophie's, yeah. Sophie's uh, 
it's like having one of your mates around, so it's a great time. So back to Australia you came and you're now a farrier, but I don't believe you learnt to be a farrier just by learning to shoe a horse from when you were a child. You've been and done some fairly intensive skilled farrier courses. Do you want to fill us in on where you did those? Yeah, so um, they were with Doug Butler, so he's probably one of the better farriers in the world, and he runs the courses. So there's two seven-week courses, you know, the first one's on just shoeing and, and it's horse anatomy, and then uh, confirmation of horses. And the test you've got to pass, it's a massive day while you're there, but you shoe, shoe a couple of horses a day, and then there's about five or six hours' worth of class lessons. Then you spend about four hours in the forge because you had to make all the shoes as well. So you, you're blacksmithing all the shoes and, and making tools and everything. So then that said homework every night and you'd have like <laughs> five hours worth of homework. So it was like a 20-hour day every day. And so where is this course held? It's not in Australia, is it? No, no, that's in America. That's in Nebraska. And so yep. that's what I mean. It's not just any old farrier's course you've been and done. Um, no. And it it does it goes quite in depth into the blacksmithing part, and I did see some some stuff of your blacksmithing stuff. Is that the way you still farrier here in Australia, or do you think it's just easier to go and buy a set of shoes from Elders and put them on? I I do cheat. I, I just buy the I just buy the <laughs> shoes. <laughs> but uh, but I, I you know I get the forge going a fair bit. I do enjoy it. You know, just, there's always something you want to make, so it's it's a great pastime. Yeah, you know, I make a fair few knives and all that sort of thing. I was going to say that the Will Comiskey knives, what do I have to do to put my order in to get one of those? They look pretty flash. Did you learn that while you were blacksmithing? <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. Because, like, they were, they were really skilled blacksmiths. Like, um, I mean, they, they were making everything. They'd make axes and they'd make, um, yeah, they could make all your shoes. They could make corrective shoes. They could make anything you wanted, basically. If, it was, if you could heat metal up and make it, well, they'd be able to do it. But it's a, it's one of those things that's like, you think you're going to learn, except you, all you learn is that it's a bottomless pit, so you spend your lifetime looking for knowledge then. So, Will Comiskey's back in Australia now as a farrier. Where do you base yourself now, Will? So, Sophie and I are living at Gundawindi, and we're still trading cattle, so we're actually pretty quiet at the moment. We've only got one mob up at Rockhampton, and then I've been showing horses and training a few horses, and then uh, looking around for other opportunities to see what can come up. So, I mean... It's a pretty good daily life, to be honest, Kay. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. How's the cat? <laughs> well, we've got two cats now. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and, Sophie, and Sophie went to Toowoomba the other day and came home with two Highlanders. So we've got, we've got quite the menagerie. So what's the next adrenaline rush uh, for you, Will? You know, that you're running out of things to do. Um, surely there must be something on the horizon. Oh, no, you can't run out of things to do. Okay, uh, you think that and then something else turns up. So, no, look, I don't know at this stage. We'll just see what happens. Yeah. There'll be definitely something turn up that'll, that'll spark our interest. So I don't, know, I don't know if there'll be much overseas travel for the next couple of years. I think that might be a bit tough. So I have been getting right into the regenerative farming side of things. I've, I've been really enjoying that. So I did do a tour to the US. I helped the bloke sort of make it up and he led it. It's Graham Reese. He, uh, like from KLR, he... Um, yep. He took us over there. We went and visited, uh, I think it was like 25 farms over there that are doing regenerative agriculture. So it's definitely an eye-opener what's possible. And yeah. um, and this year we were, actually, we were actually meant to go to New Zealand, except that got cracked off. So that's probably will be the next thing I'll do is go to New Zealand with that trip, looking at that. So 
You know, that's um, it's certainly uh, you know something that is uh, very much in the fore in the agricultural industry. Is there anything else you'd like to add, mate? Well, that's about it, Kay. Um, I mean, we could sit here and talk about Mongolia for, <laughs> for hours. So. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, but I, I would highly recommend if anyone, you know, if anyone that's listening, if they ever wanted to go, like, uh, I mean, Eric Cooper's trips, they're a lot tamer. It's highly unlikely you'll die. So that's, <laughs> that's a safe way of doing it. <laughs> but otherwise, you know, the race with the adventurous, like, because it's, it's unsupported and just anything that can go wrong will go wrong, yes. It's riddled with Murphy's Law. Anyway, so if anyone wanted to do it, I'd just say don't worry about what might happen, just go and do it. I mean, broken leg will heal in a couple of weeks, you'll be right. <laughs> um, you did say in the passing, of talking about the race um, that you do it for charity, is it a global charity that everyone fundraises for or is it one that you choose of your own liking? No, so you actually, uh, you actually choose your own charity that you're racing for. So I chose the Flying Doctor, obviously, because, you know, in, in Queensland especially, there's, you know, I've had plenty of, you know, my father had two trips with them, I think, and then, you know, I've had plenty of mates that have got a lift with them as well. And so I chose the Flying Doctor and then uh, I ended up raising, over the two years, I ended up raising 50 grand for them. And, uh, and Beck Hewitt, she raised money the second year for the Flying Doctor as well. So it was really good, you know, raising money for the Flying Doctor, but yeah, they were completely above board, and they, I think they were surprised at how much money we raised because yeah. they were like, "Holy shit!" You know, when, when you mm-hmm. rang us up, we were like, "Yeah, you know, some farmer." You know, normally they don't raise much money, and yeah, um, yeah. and they actually uh, they actually were fitting out a new aircraft, so they put our money in and actually bought a complete machine that they needed for the aircraft. So, I mean, for me, it made you feel good because you knew it was a direct contribution. I was going to say that's a great feeling of satisfaction and, uh, you know, something that you know will uh, benefit probably someone you end up knowing in the long run. Oh, yeah, and also as friends that donated as well, that, you know, were following the race and they were all donating and a lot of people I didn't know as well. But, yeah. I mean, that's that's what all work and you see the generosity of everyone, like, knowing that they're putting money mm. into that cause, so... An amazing life for a relatively young man. You are an inspiration to many. Your generosity, goodwill and good heart to the community is something that a lot of people could take a leaf from your book and get up and have a go. As you say, life is for the good times. Take care and we'll talk to you soon, Will. Well, thanks very much, Kay. It was was lovely catching up with you again. From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram.